Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 7, Chapter 9 of War and Peace. Christmas time is upon the Rostov household. This seems to entail even more expense than usual. How much longer do you think they can keep up their spending before they become totally destitute? Tolstoy seems to be hinting at a sense of deja vu when describing the tedious monotony of the household. Have you ever experienced this same sense of repetition in your daily life? If so, when? Natasha repeats the island of Madagascar several times. What do you think she means by this? Similarly, what does, did Natasha mean by saying fleas, dragonflies and grasshoppers? Yeah, I noticed that the uh, deja vu was a real theme of this particular chapter. There was a few different parts where it was um, mostly centred around Natasha's experience. First of all, she literally has deja vu somewhere in the chapter. But then later there's lines like um, she just felt like the same thing happened every day or something like that. It was towards the end. Um, you know, like just the repetition of what, what her family always did habitually. Not so much on a minute deja vu sort of level. Um, so that was interesting. I don't really feel like... Um, there's a, such a deja vu repetition in my daily life, at least not an unpleasant, an unpleasant one. One thing I do have quite often, which is, I don't know if it's not quite deja vu, it's not quite repetition, but I do have this sense sometimes if I like, if I remember something that I did that was like a complex or tedious or time-consuming thing if I remember that and think back about it I get this really sickening feeling about like all the things that I do I don't know if that makes sense I get this feeling of like oh I just you're just always doing something and it always takes so long and it's just that's just what I did on my life it's the kind of feeling like how much time did I spend doing that thing that I cared about so much then and now it just is nothing and now I can't and you wish you had spent basically any time I can recount I wish I had spent better <laughs> weirdly enough um, does that make sense it's a weird kind of feeling that I don't know how to express but yeah I often get that feeling wap a wap a way says, and I think that's War and Peace, by the way, when they say WAP, not the, uh, not that song. <laughs> uh, WAP WAP away says, Natasha repeats the island of Madagascar several times. Why? It's intentional nonsense. Natasha is bored out of her mind, so she just says random things for the sake of it. I don't think we've heard much about the buffoon before, so I'm not sure what kind of a person he is, but I imagine it was just a nonsensical answer for the sake of it. Uh, yeah, is it, is it Natasia or Natasha that says that gibberish? Natasia is the buffoon who, am I wrong in saying this, but I think they are a cross-dresser. Um, in, and I say cross-dresser in the kind of antiquated sense, but like almost like that, like they did it as a, as a clown, as a clown act, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, to be a buffoon, I should say. Um, or am I just reading that all completely wrong? Because wasn't there a, a line early when they were off hunting about this person called Natasia who 
was a man that had a girl's name or something like that. I don't know. Maybe I got my wires crossed there, but I hope something was really confusing for me in that bit. Where I was like, who is this person and why are they the buffoon? And why do they have a girl's name if they're a guy? All these questions. I, I guess what I didn't know is where do they fit into this story. And weird, another thing is weird is I don't remember that at all from my last reading. So that makes me feel like maybe I just read something wrong this time around. Um, Natasha seems bored and about to go out of her mind with boredom. She imagines this great life will come to her. Sorry, this is twisted every way's comment. Um, when she marries and she is anxious to get that life started. This is a side of her we haven't seen much. Petulant, demanding, somewhat spiteful and arrogant. I think petulant is a great word for it. I really don't know how long the Rostovs can last. Every time it's mentioned, they seem to be broke, but also spending lavishly. I imagine the Count must be racking up quite the debt. Hope he doesn't have to do anything shady when the time comes to collect. Fragrance Squirrel 99 says, I'm kind of surprised they've lasted this long. I guess I don't really understand how much money they currently have, but we've been talking about them running out of money for quite a while now. I think it's more of a balance, balancing act, right? Because they own, well, they own um, estates and those estates generate wealth. And so it's not just like a tank running empty. It's a, it's a balance of how much did we spend versus how much came in, right? So yeah, I think it's not as black and white as like just suddenly they're out of money. It's, it's more, um, oh, actually, no, it probably is more like that. It's not like they can see their money dwindling away, I should say, because they've got this money coming in passively. But at a certain point, the sums won't balance and, whoops, we're in massive amounts of debt. All right, let's keep reading. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm clearly uh, having a bit of a Natasha moment where my brain is just full of gibberish. Chapter 10 goes a little bit like this. Does it ever happen to you? Said Natasha to her brother when they settled down in the sitting room. Does it ever happen to you to feel as if there were nothing more to come? Nothing. That everything good is past. And to feel not exactly dull, but sad. I should think so, he replied. I felt like that when everything was alright and everyone was cheerful. The thought has come to, into my mind that I was already tired of it all and that we all must die. Once in the regiment I had not gone to some merrymaking where there was music, and suddenly I felt so depressed. Oh, yes, I know, I know, I know, Natasha interrupted him. When I was quite little, that used to be so with me. Do you remember when I was punished once about some plums? You were all dancing, and I sat sobbing in the schoolroom. I shall never forget it. I felt sad and sorry for everyone, for myself and for everyone, and I was innocent. That was the chief thing said Natasha. Do you remember? I remember, answered Nicholas. I remember that I came to you afterwards and wanted to comfort you, but you, do you know, I felt ashamed too. We were terribly absurd. I had a funny doll then and wanted to give it to you. Do you remember? And do you remember, Natasha asked with a pensive smile, how once, long ago, when we were quite little, Uncle called us into the study that was in the old house, and it was dark. We went in, and suddenly there stood... A negro, chimed in Nicholas with a smile of delight. A smile of delight. Of course I remember. 
Even now, I don't know whether there really was a Negro, or if we only dreamed it or were told about him. He was grey, you remember, and had white teeth and stood and looked at us. Sonia, do you remember? asked Nicholas. Yes, yes, I do remember something too, Sonia answered timidly. You know, I have asked Papa and Mama about that Negro, said Natasha, and they said there was no Negro at all. But you see, you remember? Of course I do. I remember his teeth, as if I had just seen them. How strange it is. It's as if it were a dream. I like that. Do you remember how we rolled hard-boiled eggs in the ballroom, and suddenly two old women began spinning around on the carpet? Was that real or not? Do you remember what fun it was? Yes, and you remember how Papa, in his blue overcoat, fired a gun on the porch. So they went through their memories, smiling with pleasure, not the sad memories of old age, but poetic youthful ones, those impressions of one's most distant past, in which dreams and realities blend, and they laughed with quiet enjoyment. Sonia, as always, did not quite keep pace with them, though they shared the same reminiscences. Much that they remembered had slipped from her mind, and what she recalled did not arouse the same poetic feeling as they experienced. She simply enjoyed their pleasure and tried to fit in with it. She only really took part when they recalled Sonia's first arrival. She told them how afraid she had been of Nicholas because he had on a corded jacket, and her nurse had told her that she, too, would be sewn up with cords. And I remember their telling me that you had been born under a cabbage, said Natasha, and I remember that I dared not disbelieve it then, but knew that it was not true, and so I felt uncomfortable. While they were talking, a maid thrust her head in at the other door of the sitting room. They have brought the cock, miss, she said in a whisper. It isn't wanted, Polya. Tell them to take it away, replied Natasha. In the middle of their talk in the sitting room, Dimla came in and went up to the harp that stood there in a corner. He took off his cloth covering, sorry, he took off its cloth covering, and the harp gave a jarring sound. Mr. Dimler, please play my favourite nocturne by field, came the old countess's voice from the drawing room. Dimler struck a chord, and turning to Natasha, Nicholas and Sonia, remarked, How quiet you young people are. Yes, we're philosophising, said Natasha, glancing around for a moment, and then continuing the conversation, they were now discussing dreams. Dimler began to play. Natasha went on tiptoe noiselessly to the table, took up a candle, carried it out, and returned, seating herself quietly in the former place. It was dark in the room especially where they were sitting, on the sofa, but through the big windows the silvery light of the full moon fell on the floor. Dimler had finished the piece, but still sat softly running his fingers over the strings, evidently uncertain whether to stop or to play something else. Do you know, said Natasha in a whisper, moving closer to Nicholas and Sonia, that when one goes on and on recalling memories, one at last begins to remember what happened before one was in the world. That is metapsychosis, said Sonia, who had always learned well and remembered everything. The Egyptians believe that our souls have lived in animals and will go back into animals. No, I don't believe we were in animals, said Natasha, still in a whisper, though the music had ceased, but I am certain that we were angels somewhere then there and have been here and that is why we remember may i join you said dimler who had come up quietly and he sat down with, by them if we have been angels why have we fallen lower said nicholas no that can't be not lower who said we were lower 
How do I know what I was before? Natasha rejoined with conviction. The soul is immortal. Well then, if I shall always live, I must have lived before, lived for a whole eternity. Yes, but it is hard for us to imagine eternity, remarked Dimmler, who had joined the young folk with a mildly condescending smile, but now spoke as quietly and seriously as they. Why is it hard to imagine eternity? said Natasha. It is now today, and it will be tomorrow, and always, and there was yesterday and the day before. Natasha, now it's your turn. Sing me something, they heard the countess say. Why are you sitting there like conspirators? Mama, I don't at all want to, replied Natasha, but all the same she rose. None of them, not even the middle-aged Dimmler, wanted to break off their conversation and quit that corner in the sitting room, but Natasha got up, and Nicholas sat down at the clavichord. Standing as usual in the middle of the hall and choosing the place where the resonance was best, Natasha began to sing her mother's favourite song. She had said she did not want to sing, but it was long since she had sung, and long before she again sung, as she did that evening. The Count from his study, where he was talking to Matenka, heard her, and like a schoolboy in a hurry to run out to play, blundered in his talk while giving orders to the steward, and at last stopped, while Matenka stood in front of him and also listened, smiling. Nicholas did not take his eyes off his sister and drew breath in time with her. Sonia, as she listened, thought of the immense differences there was between herself and her friend, and how impossible it was for her to be anything like as bewitching as her cousin. The old countess sat with a blissful yet sad smile, with tears in her eyes, occasionally shaking her head. She thought of Natasha and of her own youth, and of how there was something unnatural and dreadful in this impending marriage of Natasha and Prince Andre. Dimmler, who had seated himself beside the countess, listened with close eyes. Ah, countess, he said at last, that's a European talent. She has nothing to learn. What softness, tenderness, and strength. Ah, how afraid I am for her. How afraid, said the countess, not realising to whom she was speaking. Her maternal instinct told her that Natasha had too much of something, and that because of this she would not be happy. But before Natasha had finished singing, 14-year-old Petra rushed in delightedly to say that some mummers had arrived. Natasha stopped abruptly. Idiot, she screamed at her brother, and running to a chair threw herself onto it, sobbing so violently that she could not stop for a long time. It's nothing, Mama, really it's nothing, only Petra startled me, she said, trying to smile, but her tears still flowed and sobs still choked her. The mummers, some of the house serfs, dressed up as bears, Turks, innkeepers and ladies, frightening and funny, bringing in with them the cold from outside, and a feeling of gaiety, crowded at first timidly into the anteroom, then hiding behind one another, they pushed into the ballroom where shyly at first, and then more and more merrily and heartily, they started singing, dancing, and playing Christmas games. The Countess, when she had identified them and laughed at their costumes, went into the drawing room. The Count sat in the ballroom, ra smiling radiantly and applauding the players. The young people had disappeared. Half an hour later, there appeared some other, some among the mummers in the ballroom, an old lady in a hooped skirt. This was Nicholas. A Turkish girl was Petja. A clown was Dimla. And Hussar was Natasha. And a Circassian was Sonia, with burnt cork moustache and eyebrows. After the condescending surprise, non-recognition and praise from those who were not themselves dressed up, the young people decided that their costumes were so good that they ought to be shown elsewhere. Nicholas, who, as the roads were in as the roads were in splendid condition, wanted to take them all for a drive in his troika, proposed to take them with them about a dozen of the surf mummers and drive to uncle's. No, why disturb the old fellow? 
said Countess. Besides, you wouldn't have room to turn around there. If you must go, go to Melyukov's. Melyukov's. Melyukova was a widow who, with her family and their tutors and governesses, lived three miles from the Rostovs. That's right, my dear, chimed in the old count, thoroughly aroused. I'll dress up at once and go with them. I'll make Pachette open her eyes. But the countess would not agree to his going. He had had a bad leg all these last days. It was decided that the count must not go, but that if Louisa Ivanovna, Madame Schoss, would go with them. The young ladies might go to the Melyukovs. Sonia, generally so timid and shy, more urgently than anyone begging Louisa Ivanovna not to refuse. Sonia's costume was the best of all. Her moustache and eyebrows were extraordinarily becoming. Everyone told her she looked very handsome, and she was in a spirited and energetic mood, unusual with her. Some inner voice told her that now or never her fate would be decided, and in her male attire she seemed quite a different person. Louisa Ivanovna consented to go, and in half an hour, four troika slaves with large and small bells, their runners squeaking and whistling over the frozen snow, drove up to the porch. Natasha was foremost in setting a merry holiday tone, which, passing from one to another, grew stronger and reached its climax when they all came into the frost and got into the sleighs, talking, calling to one another, laughing and shouting. Two of the troikas were the usual household sleighs. The third was the old counts with a trotter from the Orlov stud as shaft horse. The fourth was Nicholas's own with a short, shaggy black shaft horse. Nicholas, in his old lady's dress, over which he had belted his hussar's overcoat, stood in the middle of the sleigh, reins in hand. At, sorry, It was so light that he could see the moonlight reflected from the metal harness discs and from the eyes of the horses who looked round in alarm at the noisy party under the shadow of the porch. Natasha, Sonia, Madame Schoss and two maids got into Nicholas's sleigh, Dimla, his wife and Petra into the old counts and the rest of the mummers seated themselves in the other two sleighs. You go ahead, Zakhar, shouted Nicholas to his father's coachman, wishing for a chance to race past him. The old count's troika with Dimla and his party started forward, squeaking on its runners as though freezing to the snow, its deep-toned bell clanging. The side horses pressed against the shafts of the middle horses, sank in the snow which was dry and glittered like sugar and threw it up. Nicholas set off, following the first sleigh. Behind him the others moved noisily, their runners squeaking. At first they drove at a steady trot along the narrow road. While they drove past the garden, the shadows of the bare trees often fell across the road and hid the brilliant moonlight, but as soon as they were past the fence, the snowy plain bathed in moonlight and motionless spread out before them glittering like diamonds and dappled with bluish shadows bang bang went the first sleigh over a cradle hole in the snow of the road and each of the other sleighs jolted in the same way and rudely breaking the frost-bound stillness the troikas began to speed along the road one after the other a hare's track a lot of tracks rang out natasha's voice through the frost-bound air how light it is nicholas came sonya's voice Nicholas glanced around at Sonia and bent down to see her face closer. Quite a new sweet face with black eyebrows and moustaches peeped up at him from her sable furs. So close and yet so distant in the moonlight. That used to be Sonia, thought he, and looked at her closer and smiled. What is it, Nicholas? Nothing, said he, and turned again to the horses. When they came out into the beaten high road, polished by sleigh runners and cut up 
by rough-shod hoofs, the marks of which were visible in the moonlight, the horses began to tug at the reins of their own accord and increase their pace. The near-side horse, arching his head and breaking into a short canter, tugged at his traces. The shaft horse swayed from side to side, moving his ears as if asking, isn't it time to begin now? In front, already far ahead, the deep bell of the sleigh ringing farther and farther off, the black horses driven by Zakar could be clearly seen against the white snow. From that sleigh one could hear the shouts, laughter and voices of the mummers. Gee up, my darlings, shouted Nicholas, pulling the reins to one side and flourishing the whip. It was only by the keener wind that met them and the jerks given by the side horses who pulled harder, ever increasing their gallop, that one noticed how fast the troika was flying. Nicholas looked back with screams, squeals and waving of whips that caused even the shaft horse to gallop. The other slaves followed. The shaft horse swung steadily beneath the bow of its head, beneath the bow over its head, with no thought of slackening pace and ready to put out speed when required. Nicholas overtook the first sleigh. They were driving downhill and coming up, coming out upon a broad-trodden track across a meadow near a river. Where are we? thought he. It's a Kosoi Meadow, I suppose, but no, this is something new I've never seen before. This isn't the Kosoi Meadow, nor the Demkin Hill, and heaven only knows what it is. It is something new and enchanted. Well, whatever it may be, and shouting to his horses, he began to pass the first sleigh. Zakar held back his horse and turned his face, which was already covered with hoar-frost to his eyebrows. Nicholas gave the horses the rein, and Zakar, stretching out his arms, clucked his tongue and let his horses go. Now look out, master, he cried. Faster still the two troikas flew side by side, and faster moved the feet of the galloping horses. Nicholas began to draw ahead. Zakar, while still keeping his arms extended, raised one hand with the reins. No, you won't, master, he shouted. Nicholas put all his horses to a gallop and passed Zakar. The horses showered the fine dry snow on the faces of those in the sleigh. Beside them sounded quick ringing bells, and they caught confused glimpses of swiftly moving legs into the shadows of the troika they were passing. The whistling sound of the runners on the snow and the voices of the girls shrieking were heard from different sides. Again, checking his horse, Nicholas looked around him. They were still surrounded by the magic plain, bathed in moonlight and spangled with stars. Zakhar is shouting that I should turn to the left, but why to the left? thought Nicholas. Are we getting to the Melikovs? Is this Melikovka? Heaven only knows where we are going, and heaven knows what is happening to us, but it is very strange and pleasant, whatever it is. And he looked round in the sleigh. Look, his moustache and eyelashes are all white, said one of the strange, pretty unfamiliar people, the one with fine eyebrows and a moustache. I think this used to be Natasha, thought Nicholas. And that was Madame Schoss, but perhaps it's not. And this Circassian with the moustache, I don't know her, but I love her. Aren't you cold? he asked. They did not answer, but began to laugh. Dimler, from the sleigh, behind, shouted something, probably something funny, but they could not make out what he said. Yes, yes, some voices answered, laughing, but here was a fairy forest with black moving shadows and a glitter of diamonds and a flight of marble steps and the silver roofs of fairy buildings and the shrill yells of some animals. And if this is really Malyakovka, it is still stranger that we drove heaven knows where and have come to Malyakovka, thought Nicholas. It really was Melyukovka, and maids and footmen with merry faces came running out of the porch carrying candles. Who is it? asked someone on the porch. The mummers from the counts, 
I know by the horses, replied some voices. Ooh, all right, there we go. Long chapter, but a bloody ripper of a chapter. That was a good one. Flying through the snow. It's Christmas time. Everyone's elated. And what a beautiful thing. Have your say about it over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.